This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Before we start this week's show, uh, we've jumped back in to record a little uh, addendum because after we recorded the main part of this week's episode, the Academy announced some pretty huge new um, rules. They're called inclusion standards. They won't go into effect until the 2024 Oscars, but uh, if you follow us, you have probably seen it discussed on Twitter. Basically, there's a set of four different standards, and any film that wants to be eligible for Best Picture must meet two of them. And they range from having a diverse cast or a story about underrepresented people or having uh, women or people of color or LGBTQ people on the creative team or working within the studio that made it. There's kind of a lot of different ways to do it, um, which makes it a little hard to immediately look at it and be like, oh, well, under these rules, Green Book wouldn't have qualified because, spoiler, Green Book would have qualified. But it's going to be really interesting to watch going forward. So we're still kind of processing this news. Um, Hopefully next week we'll be able to talk more in depth about it. But uh, Joanna and Richard, when you guys first saw this, um, does it seem like a good idea? Yeah, I mean, at first, when I just like looked really quickly at it, I was like, oh, this seems like an overreachy kind of thing that is going to sort of prove a false point of people who are saying that, you know, all of this social justice stuff is all, you know, purity politics and blah, 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 you know. You turned into like a Daily Caller reader. Right. Yeah. You know, that kind of like, look how far the left in Hollywood is going. They're they're setting these standards that are so crazy. Um, Art is being smothered by, you know, political correctness or something. Um, I didn't believe that myself. I just worried that, you know, it would sort of, it overcompensated or something. It obviously does not. It, It actually... Um, I read a lot of thoughtful people online um, last night who were just like, actually, that doesn't go far enough. Aisha Harris from Slate uh, and the Pop Culture Happy Hour. I think she's a new, actually, um, permanent chair on that show, which is exciting. Congrats to her. Uh, Anyway, she had some good points about like how, you know, symbolism is meaningful, even though it's not, you know, as thorough uh, as things can be. I think this really is the Academy setting these standards. So eventually, hopefully organically, both on-camera presence, behind-the-camera presence in the offices of distributors and studios, um, that when they have to meet these standards eventually, it'll just become the norm and it won't be feel like this kind of rigid thing imposed upon people. You know, the, the oversight of the, the Academy board, you know, I think it's going to kind of trickle down, hopefully, and just become the norm. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. A couple things stood out to me as well. Like, I have read some really interesting takes about how they didn't feel it was enough of a change and I might agree but I'm also like okay but then this isn't a bad first there I just can't find an angle where this is bad 
because is it imperfect? Maybe, but it's not as rigorous as some people are claiming it is. And so it can only be, I think, good, unless there's a huge blind spot that I'm missing that is actually bad. Um, and then the other thing that I thought was interesting is, you know, the ways in which they can meet the qualifications are so broad that, like, honestly, most Oscar films that you're thinking of in the last few years, like, actually do qualify. And I think a lot of people are erroneously saying that they wouldn't. But um, the other thing is the the idea that this is somewhat guided by uh, a, a set of rules already in place by the back after awards and 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 the way that the British um, they have a different system than we do in terms of you know um, government funded films and stuff like that. But the fact that this is already in place somewhere, it's not like this was invented out of thin air. It's like okay, it's already somewhere and working somewhere. So why mm-hmm. wouldn't why wouldn't we want to try this um, as well to address some of the inequities in this business? Yeah, the only argument I've heard um, against how this actually might play out comes from Mark Harris, who uh, was a contributor to Vanity Fair for a while. He's been on this show several times, kind of pointing out that for if you're a large studio and you have a big marketing department and you have the ability to provide internships, um, which are, you know, some of the steps that they provide, um, basically as a way to encourage these large studios to open the door to bring other people in. So if you're a studio, you can have gay people on your marketing team and have an internship and then qualify and have a movie entirely made by and about white people and have nothing change. But if you're an indie and you don't have have those huge teams behind you, kind of the fewer people you have in the machinery of making your movie, the harder it might be to qualify. So it's it, there's a way to imagine this hurting smaller independent films. But also we've got five years to get there. And a lot of those independent films are being made by people from some of these underrepresented groups as well. So it's a that that is the one argument I can see where this could potentially backfire. But it does feel like we have time to kind of to work around that and put these rules into place. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing about it that I think people you know, some of the more alarmist takes I saw on the internet is like, this is only to qualify for the Oscars. Like, like this is not for like... <laughs> only ev- only for Best Picture. Like, right, even yeah. it, like it, for acting categories or anything else, you don't have to do any of this. Right, you know, and not, not to say that the people being alarmist are right. I don't agree with a lot of the takes on, on that front or most of them or any of them. I don't know. But like, but this is not some sweeping thing that has, you know come to you know control the the art of of an entire industry that's the point is basically just to say like keep these things in mind um, because you now have to at least a little bit when making your films that you want to be viewed as the quote-unquote best of the year you know Mm -hmm. um whether you know I, i don't know if you know the academy has probably has other powers in that regard but like this is at least something concrete and you know, a, a statement of intent, let's say, that this stuff will only be viewed as, like I said, as rules for a little while before they just become, you know, the new norm. And it, it also feels thoughtful and thoughtfully done versus some of the other reactions we've seen from the Academy, which have seen like knee jerk um, you know, hastily made decisions that weren't thought through. This is like like the best popular Oscar. Yeah, exactly. Decision. Yeah. yeah, you know, this is like or or to like just snip certain categories from the telecast without like really thinking through how that would land with people. Um, and this really does feel like something that they wanted to make sure that they did due diligence on, that they had a committee that they you know that they voted on, and all this sort of stuff like that. And I think that that gives it a nice you know a different feeling. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. So in 2024 is when these rules are going to place. But um, sooner than that, I think maybe the 2022 Oscars, the films that want to be eligible for Best Picture will have to kind of present an inclusivity report on like how they are meeting these standards and whether or not they qualify for them. They won't, it won't make them ineligible. But I think just that process of stepping back and having to write it down, being like, oh, did we have all white people working in this one department? Or like, do we have no department heads who weren't um, men. Um, I think what we've learned a lot this summer, especially as these protests have been going on, is that white people in power can often reinforce the status quo and surround themselves by only people who look just like them. And Hollywood has certainly been really bad at that. And just providing an opportunity to step back and say, like, hmm, how have we built this around us and maybe take the chance to change it? That seems like a, a really positive way to make people think differently, even if, you know, it feels like they're having to obey some kind of rule, but it can really reframe the way people are approaching this. I agree. It's just like at the very least, it's making people take pause and like be honest about, you know, what what their movies look like and stuff like that. One thing that that irritated me in the initial reactions is I saw a lot of like, well, so much for Greta Gerwig and her work and stuff like that. And I'm just like, as if Greta Gerwig, who has made two films, right, uh, full, d- directed two films on her own, as if she is like the worst offender in Hollywood history of like yeah. massive whiteness uh, in front of the camera. There's a lot of other men who have been very successful for a very long time uh, with equally white films. So I don't know. That just that just irritated me that Greta has somehow like become this stand in for all like sins of whiteness in front of the camera. Could Greta do better? Yes. And certainly if, if her next film isn't a period piece, I hope she will. But I don't know. It's interesting. I think that something that we'll have to be conscious of, uh, which is not something that we have been unconscious of before, but like as these new rules are put in place in the next few years, like is that certain contingent of people who are going to start the kind of like, well, did this only get in because blah, 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 you know, and and Mm. I that's inevitable no matter what you do you know whether it's in regarding movies or college admissions or job hiring you know whatever there's always going to be that contingent that's like well you know what about fair fair merit is merit Uh, i think the difference here is that the oscars because it's about art it's so subjective that there is not some hand of Big Brother coming down to like, you know, th- this is th- this is all made up, you know. <laughs> so like, w- w- this this is all pretend. It's all just you know people's whims or whatever. Like it, it matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but like trying to shape a little bit of what uh, content gets considered for this and and encouraging people who who want that this highest accolade in the world of film by some standards to think a bit more productively and widely about who they hire. Um, I don't really see that as any kind of overreach. It's more just kind of a, I don't know, rehoning of a mission statement, I guess. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, for people who are, you know, tearing at their clothing, worrying that Martin Scorsese movies won't get to be made anymore or whatever. Like there are <laughs> ways to tell stories about straight white men still. It just then you have to have more people behind the camera or whatever. Like it's not this is not some like, you know, huge thing that's going to totally alter the course of filmmaking. It's just uh, I don't know. It's, it's forcing the hand of people a little bit toward, you know, what I think a lot of people have been trying to do in the last many years. Yeah, toward making the people who make your movie resemble the people who are going to see your movie. And I think a lot of the well-done movies about straight white men that we've seen in recent years have already been doing that, which is maybe another reason that a lot of the Best Picture nominees of recent years would would pass these rules. 
I think what's most encouraging to me is that after years of watching the Academy be on the defensive, like, you know, the the governors who passed this rule really specifically reference Oscar So White in this announcement. And, you know, ever since then, I think they really took that to heart. It's taken them a long time to change. They've invited a ton of new people into the Academy, which has made a huge difference. But this is coming when they're, you know, Parasite just won Best Picture. They're not under fire for bad decisions, um, which they've made plenty of over the years. Um, so it's nice to see them being proactive and, like, recognizing, I think, this summer's protest as an opportunity to really push forward. Forward and and seizing that moment, it's it's good on them. Well, yes and no. I mean, like Parasite winning was such a tremendously great uh, narrative earlier this year, but wasn't it still like the whitest acting nominee lineup in in like recent history? Yeah. Although acting categories still wouldn't apply to any of these rules. So sure, <laughs> it's just like I, I like I you know. Parasite winning changed the narrative of of this year's Oscars, but before that, leading up to it, when people thought like the Irishman might win or something like that, I think I saw a lot of conversation about like how much really has changed since Oscars so white. And I guess yeah. Parasite winning hopefully said something about things moving in one some direction, maybe. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that they were like completely given a hall pass this year just because Parasite uh, won so many things. Though That's it's fair. great that it did. It, it feels like they could have rest on their laurels with Parasite winning and like gotten away with it, but instead they yeah, they push forward. So we can true. applaud them for that. Um, anything you guys are are excited to see change or happen in the discourse from here? Is it just nice to have Oscar stuff to talk about right now? Like I really like it when my Twitter feed is talking about arcane Oscar rules personally. Yeah, yeah well, it, I, I'd rather be talking about <laughs> initiatives like this than like I, I don't know, like banning critical race theory from. <laughs> <laughs> federal government agencies or whatever the fuck is going on, <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that no matter what the topic, like the individual topic, like any time there is this kind of, you know, institutional attempt to address problems that are so diffuse in the system and so pervasive rather in the system that like no one initiative is actually going to like solve everything. I think there's always going to be that kind of really contentious debate, whether it's on Twitter or where we imagine if we were all or some of us were at like the going to Toronto today, like imagine the conversation tonight about all this, like throughout the week, like I think there was always going to be some sort of, you know, heated debate about it. But I think that is also kind of part of the point. Like people are already sort of starting to think about like, okay, which movies actually, you know, work in this, in this schema. Like it's actually forcing people to look again at, you know, some serious lacks and, um, you know, oversights deliberate or not in the industry. So I don't know, maybe contentious debate um, on this, I think is good. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, this is not going to be the last we talk about this. Um, we will be discussing it more next week, hopefully talking to some more people who are involved in making the decision. So I guess now on with our regularly scheduled programming. It is back to school season. It is what would usually be festival season. Um, Richard, have you thought about which airport lounge you'd be sitting in right now if things were normal in the world? Oh, I'd be at, at Newark for Porter Air. Only way to fly to Toronto, <laughs> in my opinion, if you're from New York. Well, so this time last year, you went to Venice and then straight to Toronto, right? That was your crazy jet setter move? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was uh, um, a man of international, well, not mystery, but something. <laughs> jet lag. Yeah. Um, well, film festivals are still happening. As we have talked about, the Venice Film Festival is happening in person for the lucky, uh, you know, Europeans who are allowed to go to Italy. Um, so we're going to catch up on a little bit what's been happening in Venice and then preview uh, the Toronto Film Festival, which is kicking off this week in person to some extent in Canada. But for most of the world, including us, will happen all online with some interesting movies to talk about from there. 
Um, and then we'll get into a couple movies that you can watch, whether or not you have credentials for these festivals, including Cuties on Netflix and then uh, HBO Max's Unpregnant, starring the delightful Haley Lee Richardson, who Joanna talked to. Uh, so we'll talk about the movie from there. But first, Venice. So we're all, you know, we've been watching it happen from afar, as usual for me. I've never been to Venice. Watching Kate uh, Blanchett and Tilda Swinton wear beautiful things on a real red carpet has been uh, pretty soothing for me. But do you guys feel like because this is a film festival happening in such an uncertain time, like, is it kind of harder than usual to get a grasp on, like, what's happening? What are these movies? When can we see them? Like, everything seems uncertain, even if some of these titles seem pretty great. I I would say a little less of the urgency is removed, you know, because... While at least some of the big movies will take us into the fall and, you know, become part of the awards conversation that we, you know, treasure so closely on this podcast, it's still uncertain whether, you know, a lot of the big awards movies don't have release dates yet. So will these get release dates? I know that like things like Ammonite, yep, coming out in November, but like that could change. So while it's interesting to learn about exciting new, you know, serious cinema from Venice Festival reports, it's hard still to really plot them on any sort of timeline that, so, you know, people can actually plan on seeing them at some point. They do feel still a little bit like so much else. It's, they're just kind of suspended in space. Yeah. I mean, one of the titles that's playing at Venice that does have kind of a set release date, um, Nomadland, which is coming from Fox Searchlight. It stars Frances McDormand. It's kind of got like all the trappings of like a big fall movie. It's maybe the only traditional one in that vein um, out this year, at least from like a studio like Foster's Light with such a big track record. Anyway, it's set. It hasn't premiered at Venice yet. It will later this week. It'll be at TIFF. So like maybe that's the one that will kind of like help feel like it's solidifying things. And otherwise, it's all kind of like titles that are like, oh, intriguing. Maybe I'll see that in a year, if ever, if theaters ever exist again. It's tough. I was just thinking this morning, um, you know, as we were gearing up to talk about TIFF on the podcast this morning, a year ago at TIFF, you saw David Copperfield. You texted me saying, Joanna, you're going to love this movie. I can't wait for you to see it. And I know some people are seeing it in the UK, but I still have not seen David Copperfield a year later. And so it's still like, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a a weird time to track your the usual ebb and flow of these of these movies that we get so excited about. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking specifically about um, these two Vanessa Kirby titles that are playing. Like there's an article in The Hollywood Reporter, I think, that said she was like ratcheting to the top of like the actor award speculation at Venice, which is great. Um, But it's, you know, it's two titles that are, like, independent. One of them is called Pieces of a Woman. One of them is called The World to Come. Like, they both seem really intriguing. I have no idea when we'll see either of them. Um, So, like, maybe that gives her Best Actress Oscar buzz. Maybe it doesn't. I'm not sure anybody really knows for sure. I mean, very few people don't benefit in some way from having two lauded performances at a major, you know, international film festival. So I think that, like, if nothing else, Kirby... Um, who has been long admired, whether for for her work on stage, you know, I saw her in the Gillian Anderson production of uh, uh, Streetcar Named Desire, where she played Stella, and she was so good in that. Uh, Obviously, The Crown, Mission Impossible, Fallout, like, but now she's really kind of, it seems at Venice, like, asserted herself, you know, as like, one of the new serious, you know, heavy hitting younger actors in, in film, um, which is cool because she's really talented. And um, these movies sound so different. One is a period romance between her and a character played by Catherine Waterston, who I believe is more of the lead of that movie. And then there's this very contemporary drama with uh, her and Shia LaBeouf and um, intriguingly the comedian Eliza Schlesinger and Ellen Burstyn. That's Pieces of a Woman. So so yeah, it's like she it sounds like she has a, a two different roles, but but distinct in that they're making her more of a star, which I think is cool. 
Uh, yeah, I'm just looking at um, Scott Feinberg wrote about Pieces of a Woman, which is also going to be at Toronto. It doesn't have a distributor yet, but it does seem like it could get that attention and kind of enter in there, although it's apparently also being described as a tough sell. I mean, it is about like pretty dark subject matter. But I think you're right, Richard, that like whether or not like award season comes together the way that we expect it to, um, it's only good news for Vanessa Kirby and exciting for like those of us who like her work and want to see her do other stuff. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, what else has caught y'all's attention of what people are talking about from Venice? Well, I think the the biggest thing coming from, you know, an American filmmaker thus far seems to be One Night in Miami, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which was directed by Regina King based on a play. And it's about this kind of meeting of the minds in the 1960s between four really, you know, heavy hitting in one sense of Cassius Clay, but four, you know, major figures in um, Black culture and the civil rights movement at that time and it kind of it ima- that, that, that conversation actually did happen these men did hang out on the night that Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston but you know little is known about what they actually talked about so this movie will the play first and now the movie kind of imagines what that conversation w- might have been and judging from the reviews which were mostly positive there was the, the BBC was a little more mixed kind of calling it a little too stagey too obviously an adaptation of a play but for the most part it sounds like it's a really exciting piece of work both for its acting and for Regina King who has directed television before but this is her feature film debut and seems to be making you know on her way to at least in the you know whenever the movie comes out like more of a splash for someone who just recently won an acting Oscar that's pretty cool that she's now turning it around and getting Oscar attention for being a director that's the film that I've seen the most sort of excited buzz around, um, at least permeating into my timeline and my notice. And like, I am really excited to be excited for a Regina King uh, directed film. And um, I think that's, you know, I can't I can't wait to see it if and when I ever get to see it. And what a fun, like unexpected narrative to pop up in the uh, in the award season already. Yeah, and to have Leslie Odom, um, you know, from Hamilton fame, playing Sam Cooke, and apparently he does sing in the movie. Um, so that's pretty so exciting. Um, 
making up for Harriet, in which he and Cynthia. Re- well, I guess Cynthia Reba did sing a little bit in Harriet, but he didn't sing in it, which was sad. Um, and he doesn't have he, to sing in every role, you know. I no, think. no, no, no. But his his voice is such a gift. Yeah, no, um, exactly. it's also like. I don't know what Watchmen's reception was in England, but like the goodwill toward Regina King in America feels kind of boundless, like between her Oscar win for Feel Street Could Talk and then Watchmen. And, you know, she had like four Emmys before Watchmen even happened. Um, So you just you know that like anything that she does is going to be met with this automatic like excitement. So I can imagine, you know, it's playing pretty early in Toronto, quote unquote. It's going to be one of the, the first films kind of available on their digital platform. So it does seem like that's the like number one with a bullet title for, for most of us to get to see. And how interesting that a year ago, the movie out of Venice that we were talking about the most was Joker. Uh, so, huh? uh, you know, just different time. Yeah. Different time. I mean, what would we give to be mad about Joker right now as opposed to uh, everything else? Problems that true, true, us. true. Um, all right. Should we talk about Toronto then? Um, Richard, I was just, we, you and I have been kind of putting our heads together on like what amounts to a schedule. There are some really interesting titles. And even if the entire thing feels kind of like puzzling about how this whole online film festival thing will work, how, how are you feeling heading into it? Are, are you getting the festival excitement despite everything? A little bit. I mean, I'm a little sad because, you know, just jumping back to Venice really quick, like just looking at reports, not necessarily movie reviews coming from the festival, but like just accounts of what it's like to be there. It seems like it's really nice. You know, it seems like things are going well. I mean, granted, we, you know, who knows, two weeks from now, everyone gets sick (laughs) or, you know, so I mean, obviously, you know, everything is unknown at this point. But like, I'm not saying that I wish I was going to Toronto in the current climate because I wouldn't want to, you know, endanger anyone there. <laughs> you know, Canada's doing a lot better than the people in the U.S. are. Yeah. But, like, you know, it's hard to get excited for a virtual Toronto when an actual Venice seems to be going kind of okay. Yeah. And also, you know, like, this is a problem. I mean, problem. This is <laughs> a minor, minor gripe for a cushy job. Like, you know, sometimes when the New York Film Festival happens and you're like, I, should I go see a press screening? It doesn't feel quite as important or urgent if it's in the city where you live, you know? And so making a Toronto schedule, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I'll watch that at some point in the 24 hour window from home. Um, So again, with that sense of urgency where you're, you know, rushing to get in line at something, you know, it affects how you feel about a film. I think to some extent, festival fever is real. I don't think it'll be as communicable uh, digitally. The, the thing that I'm going to miss so much is, like, the feeling when you're in Toronto and you're like, well, I could, like, sit still and, like, work on my computer for a couple hours or I could, like, duck into this theater and see, I don't know what this movie is, but, like, let me check it out. And there's a lot of smaller titles on the TIFF lineup that feel kind of like that. Like, they could be that discovery you get to catch on your own. But that's a really hard feeling to capture when you, like, have laundry to fold or, like, a regular job to do or, like, I don't know, like, whatever Netflix show you're binging is also competing for you. It's a, you know, being able to go to a festival and, like, absorb yourself so fully in is such a huge privilege. Um, And, you know, the fact that we're losing it for one year is not a giant tragedy, but it is, you miss that way to be able to meet a movie where it is, which is really hard to create any other way. And I think audience reaction. You know, I was talking to my parents this weekend about, like, and shoot, my mom was like, well, I'm okay, so if you get to see the movies and you have a pretty big TV, like, what, you know, I know it won't, it won't be quite the same, but what are you really missing out on? And, you know, at a festival like Toronto, which, you know, its big prize is an audience prize, and it really helps, you know, be kind of a, a gauge of, of where moviegoers are going to be on a certain title, I think that's lost. Or I think back to a moment at the Venice Film Festival last year, uh, my first, perhaps only time going to that, when Laura Dern delivered her, you know, Catholic kind of feminist monologue uh, in Marriage Story, 
uh, to a largely Italian audience, they were so they were they were they cheered. I mean, it was such a big thing, and that was the first yeah. moment where I was like, "Oh, Laura Dern could really go all the way with this role." So it's going to be really hard to suss any. I mean, impossible essentially to suss any of that out from home. Yeah. Plus, there's the narrative on the ground. You know, like I don't go to the you know bigger award season festivals that you guys go to, but there is still at the film festivals that I go to, there is just that conversation on the ground where Richard, you'll often come back from Telluride or Toronto and be like, "Well, everyone's saying X." Yeah, everyone's saying it's X's year, and I don't know who starts those things, but I feel like there's just like a handful of people at these film festival who's like, well, obviously it's you know, uh, you know, it's Renee, it's Renee from Telluride on, it's yeah. just Renee, you know what I mean? And we won't have that this year, and that's actually, you know, I, I lament the loss of it, but on the other hand, I'm like, that's kind of exciting to see how these campaigns are going to blossom without that assist, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I worry about them not blossoming at all. I feel I, that's like the the scary part, probably for campaign strategists as well. That like, how do you have that conversation happen other than like spying on like, you know, Slack chatter between journalists? Like, what is the version of that that's going to happen now? I mean, if you kind of make the, the 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 frequent comparison when people who like sports but don't care about this stuff ask me, someone who doesn't care about sports but likes this stuff, it's like, well, isn't it the same? You're rooting for things, you have your favorites, you you strategize or you talk about trades or whatever, you know, whatever the kind of analogs are. And those things can continue. Sports is continuing just without fans and in the stands. And this thing will continue for a while without that kind of initial rah-rah, cheer, you know, buzz kind and of, all that. But it's, it's a little different, not to like woman-splain sports to you or whatever, as you know, but like Winning the game of an award season is different than winning the Super Bowl because, like, in theory, you could win the Super Bowl based on your athletic merit alone, right? If you are the most athletically gifted team, no matter who is rooting for you, you could win. But with award season, as we've talked about for years on this podcast, like, it's not who was the best in the movie that year. That's not what award season ends. Everyone who who's won an Oscar, I think, is a tremendously, incredibly gifted performer, and I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but it's the strategy. It's who is, has deserved it, who has done other things that we like want to reward them for and stuff like that. And so is it possible that we're entering an award season that is a purely merit-based year? Doubtful, but like, you know what I mean? I, I It's... I don't know. It's well, yeah, no, I do know what you mean, and I think I think it's. I mean, I, you know, the sports thing is obviously not a perfect comparison, and also, you know, the way that things win movie awards, you know, they're they're different inroads in you know toward victory, um, and a lot of it is campaigning, and I think it will be interesting to see when even when people like us have like less of a however minor sway in the conversation because we're all kind of atomized and and not in those rooms having those conversations, but also there can't be all the luncheons and the parties in New York and L.A. And I think that some of that will, yes, will 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 move toward. You know, I've I've already seen like a couple things written about this, like having a pure award season. Um, at the same time, and maybe this is naive or self-aggrandizing about what we do, but like I do think there have been instances in the past, I don't know, however many years, of that chatter actually kind of making its way to the nominating committees at the Academy. And something gets in there that, like, maybe wouldn't have had there been not sort of a groundswell of support for it. Um, you know, I'm thinking of maybe something along the lines of Antonio Banderas getting nominated for Pain and Glory last year. Mm-hmm. Um 
or, you know, any number of smaller things that have not only, you know, so I don't know, I think that it's, but I think you're right, Joanna, that it is going to be really interesting, despite personally me feeling like, you know, whiny and cranky about not being in Toronto. I think it will be really interesting to observe just how this all plays out in a totally new form. And I'm, I'm actually kind of excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about not to like, not to make the win of uh, this film about the white men who liked it at all. But I was just thinking about like, do you remember right before Parasite won? Not right before, but there was that screening where like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio were there and were just like drooling out of both sides of their mouths about Parasite and how much they loved it and stuff like that. And it's like, it's stuff like that where you have like these... That we tried to make people aware of of those moves and the importance of these academy screenings that happen all the time and all the sort of stuff like that. The panels, the handshakes, the luncheons, the whatever. But yeah, in the absence of that, or in the absence of at least the quantity of that, it's going to be fascinating. So I'm like, I like at first I was like, what are you going to talk about a little gold man this year with everything happening? And now I'm like, no, I think more than ever, honestly, not to like spin our own hype or anything like that, but like I think trying to parse this year is going to be a really fun, fascinating challenge for us. Yeah. I mean, we are so, we're fresh off of the awards campaign in which the movie that won Best Picture was on pure, not pure passion, like there was a campaign behind Parasite, but like what made it win is that people loved it. It was not a factor of like marketing something up to Best Picture, which has happened plenty of other times. So I think there, I think there is more reason to be optimistic um, given the circumstances than not. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing, the facet that, you know, obviously is implicit in all of this conversation is money. And in a a world that we're living in right now, like money obviously is going to come to bear in some form in terms of like movies jockeying to get their film's attention. But like, it's kind of something of of an, of an equalizer if all that means is like get a link for the movie and email it to people. Or schedule like a Zoom Q&A or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, those things are uh, that there is something vaguely democratizing about that. So I don't know, maybe that's a reason to to hope that there will be some, you know, more parity in in this. Also, I I know you guys have talked about this already on the podcast when I was gone, but like in a year where a lot of people are watching things at home, that Netflix disparity doesn't seem so wide, right? Like this seems like... What's the difference between a Netflix movie and something that's released on VOD? Uh, It feels cheaper for some people to watch. I don't know. And then the other thing is the budgets for award teams. So many people have been like, it feels like brinksmanship with so many people hiring up their awards strategy teams at like Netflix, especially. They just like were hiring and hiring and hiring. But in a time right now where like, Disney doesn't have its cruise lines to buoy its bottom line and stuff like that, or, you know, various things are happening. I'm wondering, you know, if we will see a tightening of the belt in those award strategy departments at studios as well. Yeah, I mean, to your point about Netflix, Joanna, like, I think I have also seen, read some rumbling from, you know, perhaps an older segment of of the industry who think that this is, you know, not on purpose, but a kind of Trojan horse year for the streamers because that difference has been so eroded this year. Right. um, They they think, well, this is just the streamers are going to come and take it over at all because they already have such big digital reach. It's so easy to watch a movie on Netflix versus opening your email, finding the weird screener link, blah, 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 typing in a password, you know, like getting a a text message on your phone to enter in another password, you know. Oh my God, yeah. In this this case, it's like, (laughs) I just press play. Okay, you know, so I think that, I mean, I think that 
you know, the way that streamers like Netflix have, you know, grimly benefited from this year, uh, that really could continue uh, in terms of, you know, Oscar stuff. I still wonder about the backlash version of that, where everyone uh, who watches how easy Netflix has it is mad. And therefore, you know, the Academy, I think, has been like one of the strongest bastions of Netflix backlash that exists, as we've watched happen, as they've like worked on, you know, preserving the theatrical window. A lot of that stuff isn't the top concern right now. But I, I that ease of access is a really good point. But I still wonder if it's enough to overcome the idea that like Netflix is still doing a lot to erode the demand for movie theaters and isn't. Like, that's not going to change at, after the pandemic. Yeah, and people could want to support theatrical distributors and be like, you know, Netflix already had their their cake this year. We don't need to give them more. Tenet for best picture. That's the uh, that's where that ends up. Although, <laughs> I, I, just to talk about Tenet for one second, I do feel like it's interesting that this giant Christopher Nolan movie comes out like you know however many years after Dunkirk, but. The general perception seems to be that, like that's not really an Oscar contender for whatever the Oscars are going to be. I mean, Richard, you've actually seen it. Maybe you're better to speak to this than me. Yeah, I don't think so, because it's not, you know, if Nolan couldn't get a win for the serious World War II movie, I I, I would be hard-pressed to see him having much of a, a path for this one. But, you know, the box office is really strong. You know, it made $20 million in the U.S. It's opening weekend in 2,800 screens, but, you know, you have to remember that, you know, the seats are distant, so they're selling to a big, yeah. the, the, the stock the numbers is, are totally off. Yeah, but still, it's making good money, you know, in a time when people weren't sure if it could happen, that could happen, so. Yeah, and people are driving far distances and flying to see it, which is, like, feels, on the one hand, a certain version of that is very dangerous and bad, and on the other hand, I don't want to use the wrong word, but, like, to see the power of a movie that you know I know the, mm-hmm. I know the I know the cult of Nolan is like sort of close to the cult of Snyder and like maybe I shouldn't be like excited about these fans flying across the country but I'm like you flew for a movie like that's, <laughs> that's so interesting I don't know um okay I, I took us off topic you want anything else from Toronto uh that you wanted to get into Richard I mean I I'm excited to see Ammonite I think we all are the uh, Kate Winslet Saoirse Sharona, um both lesbian romance and dinosaur bones movie I haven't totally grasped on how those two fit together um, yeah and I I, I, I I like that um you know the, that Ammonite is probably the most other than Nomadland which is also premiering at Venice but the most buzzy world premiere at uh, at Toronto seems to be Ammonite, which is, you know, yeah. a queer drama. Um, one of the buzziest movies out of Venice is The World to Come with with Catherine Watterson and Vanessa Kirby, and that's a lesbian romance. And I, I don't know, I think that that's a cool thing. And, I you know, I, I know that it's, um, you know, these movies were made separate of each other entirely, but after the success of Portrait of a Lady on Fire last year, like, to see more of that continuing, I have seen some rumbling from people on Twitter being like, you know there are lesbians in the present day, right? Like, not all lesbian romances have to be <laughs> right, uh, right. set in the time before the love could speak its name, and I totally, totally <laughs> see that that point. Um but I think that's exciting. And I think it's also really exciting. You know, I can't wait to see Nomadland. Um, there was a really fascinating profile of, uh, well, I've been saying it wrong. I've been saying Chloe Zhao. Oh, it's yeah. Chloe Zhao, yeah. uh, apparently, is how it's pronounced. And I apologize to her and uh, whoever else has that shares that last name for saying it wrong all these years. Um, but just about the making of Nomadland and was it, I think it was in the New York Times. No, it was in a, it was written by our, our old colleague, Rebecca Keegan. And the it was Rebecca Reporter. Keegan. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's just a really fascinating piece about how that project came together and how they made it and how Chloe Zhao was doing it, you know, being at a production meeting for Immortals and then getting on a plane and flying, you know, out to the middle of nowhere and filming with Francis McDormand for a few days. And then, you know, and I just think that is such a cool feat of 
balancing, you know, the material needs of a career, which is, you know, she needed a big paycheck so she could do the smaller things uh, with with the more artistic pursuits. Although it sounds like she's going to make Immortals artistic too, which is cool. Um, and I feel like there is a narrative that right now this woman who is so committed to like the practice of filmmaking, no matter the scale, that like everyone could get behind if that movie is good. I hope it's good because I think that would be a really cool to see her break out, you know, aided by obviously the obvious awards uh, clout of Frances McDormand. Yeah. Um, I keep thinking about like Nomadland and One Night in Miami, both of which are going to be available, um, you know, in the early part of Toronto this week. The way that the digital press platform works is that the films become available at 11 a.m. on each day. So, you know, when, you, when you're watching a film festival, even via Twitter, you kind of see the flood of tweets coming out when everyone's like, oh, my God, Jojo Rabbit or whatever it is. And I wonder if, like, it's going to be, like, lunchtime and everyone's going to be like, so, Nomadland. I, I, I'm curious about how that just momentum from screenings happens because Nomadland and One Night in Miami are both titles I'm excited enough about that I want to watch them at 11 a.m. in the middle of the workday. Um, and we'll see how actually possible that winds up being. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Okay, so pivoting from festivals to films, you can actually watch yourself. Um, on Netflix this week is a French movie called Cuties, which I think in the original t- uh, French title might not sound quite as like much like a Netflix children's series. Yeah, um, it's Cuties. <laughs> Everything sounds better with a French accent. Um, This movie premiered at Sundance earlier this year, and Richard, you saw it before it kind of became enmeshed in a uh, a controversy entirely not of the film's making. Uh, Do you want to just catch us up on the movie itself and what happened to it? Yeah, um, this was a movie they screened uh, for critics before Sundance, um, and because they were excited about it, and they had reason to be, and it won, you know, won some big uh, things at Sundance. Um, It's from a French Senegalese filmmaker named Maimouna Ducoré, it's you know it's a it's a look at a Senegalese Muslim girl in Paris who is struggling to find herself. You know she's kind of tween age, as she's you know torn between two cultures: that of her parents and her her family and 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 her community uh, within Paris, but also the broader world and and just trying to you know reconcile those things of, of con, you know contemporary visions of you know young womanhood uh, in the in in France versus those of her you know her her roots in, in Senegal and the movie approaches all that stuff with a really complicated and understanding gaze um it understands its subject not just the person but but like everything surrounding her really well from my perspective anyway and yes there is dancing in it that is provocative but it's meant to be a sort of you know, signifier of this girl's awkward kind of flailing for something, you know, and kind of misunderstanding social mores and and, and, and things like that in a way that it is not, the movie is not, you know, sort of touting the dancing stuff as, as like empowering necessarily. It's just, it's, it's showing the confusion and yearning of, of someone who is really struggling to find herself. So it's it's a good movie. It's a really interesting film, um, and and is moving and, and a little bit you know kind of hard to watch it at certain points. But anyway, Netflix then you know bought the film uh, after Sundance, and I don't know who you know how, how this happened, but the 
um, the thumbnail or whatever, the poster they were using to advertise the film was a still from this kind of big final dance scene. And it looked, you know, I can understand sight unseen having not seen the movie. It looked like it was this like sexually provocative movie about an 11 year old. Um, it is not that. Uh, that was marketing gone horribly awry and, uh, you know, really a really unthoughtful way to package that f- that very thoughtful film. And it's a real bummer because it seems to have kind of sunk that movie's whole chances in the U.S., which is, you know, feels like maybe some really unfortunate collateral damage of just, you know, Netflix, big behemoth as it is, kind of lumbering through and not applying as much nuance to that film as it does to some of its other more homegrown properties. It's so interesting. I was just I just watched the Diablo Cody Karen Kusama film Jennifer's Body over the weekend for the first time. I had never seen it. It came out in uh, 2009. Uh, it's Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried. And then I watched this really long, like hour long conversation that Megan Fox and Diablo Cody had in 2019 for the 10th anniversary about the ways in which that film was mismarketed and how it really destroyed that film's chances with its intended audiences. And it is incredible to me to think about the way in which marketing, I mean, we know this already, that marketing is so important to the way a movie lands, but like that it could destroy something that's trying to like thoughtfully interrogate, especially female sexuality by marketing it as angling towards female sexuality or whatever it is that that Cutie's poster was trying to do. And I don't know, I just I hope that someone at Netflix was chewed out for this in a big way and um it's it's really disappointing because i haven't seen the film but by you know by all reports it is a really incredible film and i i will be seeing it but yeah there were there were like protests against the film based on people misunderstanding what the premise of the film was based on this image alone you know and we should be careful to note that a lot of that protest originated from right-wing people with a different kind of agenda you know to prove a sort of um you know not only, you know, the immorality of, you know, leftist, whatever that's code for media, but also leaning very closely toward like the QAnon conspiracy about, you know, this cabal of pedophiles in oh, Hollywood completely, or DC. completely, yeah. You know, so I think there was, I, I mean, this term has become overly used, but I think there was uh, that a lot of the QD's controversy was bad faith from, uh, you know, people with a different agenda. But a lot of it was just Ernest being like, what the hell is this? And I understand that given the still they use. And I, I, without spoiling anything, that scene that that still is from is supposed to be kind of horrifying. It's it's not supposed to be celebratory. Right. And that's, the I think, the real, you know, I, I feel like the person either who picked that didn't watch the movie or didn't really, really didn't understand the movie. And either way, it's bad. All right. Well, a different movie that you can also watch that um, hopefully doesn't have any of its own controversy, but is not, um, you know, scared of controversial topics. Uh, on HBO Max this week is the movie Unpregnant. And Joanna, you talked to uh, one of the stars, Haley Lou Richardson. And um, tell me more about it. Oh, my favorite, Haley Lou Richardson. <laughs> um, we, I think we're all three of us big fans of Haley Lou Richardson, who has done something really interesting with a career that is only like a few years long so far. She's just getting started, basically, is the point. I told her this to her face over Zoom, um, so I don't feel bad saying it to you now, that like I saw her in three different films before I realized who she was, because I think she is that chameleonic 
that it has nothing to do with like wigs or prosthetics or anything like that. It's just her demeanor. And I guess that's just what acting is. But like, so I saw her first in Edge of 17, uh, Columbus, and then Support the Girls. I think I saw Support the Girls before I saw Columbus. Um, otherwise, I, I think I would have known already who she was. Anyway, she's playing young women in all of those movies, but they're so different. And I just think she's incredibly talented. You know, so this film... Uh, is from Rachel Lee Goldenberg, who got some notice earlier this year for this remake, musical remake of Valley Girl that she released, I think it was in May. And this film, Unpregnant, um, as you can probably tell from the title, is about a young woman who finds out she's pregnant and decides she does not want to be pregnant anymore. And she sort of, uh, because of, you know, abortion laws in this country, sets off on a road trip with an old friend of hers that she's fallen out of touch with. And Haley Lou Richardson plays sort of the, like, straight-laced girl. And then her old friend is played by uh, Barbie Ferriera, who I like really sat up and took notice of in Euphoria. Uh, she's incredible in Euphoria. She's really fun in this. And, you know, it's like a very mismatched duo. It's about female friendship. It's a road trip movie, uh, you know, weird and wild adventures along the way, you know, and Haley Lou is just playing yet another like, I don't mean that in like a yet another, but like yet another like interesting dimensional teenage girl. Like that mm-hmm. these 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 young women she plays, I just I find that they don't fit in boxes very easily. I really loved her and support the girls in that way. She's playing this like really sexy, like fun, whatever. But like there's there's just always something else going on underneath the surface with something that that she does. So yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. Do you guys want to gush about Haley Lee Richardson before just we listen to her talk? Thinking about her and support the girl. She's in like one of the best gifts on the yes. internet, where she just busts out of the door and shoots off a confetti cannon, and she's wearing this like ridiculous crop top because she's you know working at like a Hooters esque restaurant. Uh, yeah. that movie that movie is such a a gift. Um, no, she's the best. She's just like she's one of those actors who like. You know, she's not like the engine. She's not a huge star where she's the driving creative force behind her movies. But she just pops up in all these different places where you're like, huh, I just want to keep an eye on you. And she's reuniting with Coconana, the director of Columbus, a movie she's wonderful in, and like a sci-fi movie with Colin Farrell, which is uh, thrilling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, yeah, she is one of the, you know, a handful of actors where I'm like, I will follow you wherever you lead me. Right. No matter, even if it's a movie that I don't know that I'm going to have an interest in, I'm interested to see whatever it is Haley Lou Richardson is going to do in it. And this is an interesting movie because, you know, this is an HBO Max movie, you know, and that's sort of a newish thing for us to say. And so to think about, like, what makes a couple things, like what makes an HBO Max movie, you know, like when you say Netflix movie, there's a wide range, right? There's Kissing Booth 2 and then there's, you know, Roma. So like those are all under the umbrella (laughs) of a Netflix movie. Um, But what a Netflix movie means to me is, you know, what streamer movie content means to me is more of an opportunity for different kinds of stories to be told. So like Unpregnant, a story about two young women, a story about abortion, a story, you know, directed by a woman, all this sort of stuff like that. Like, you know, it's not the first you know, we've seen some stories kind of similar to this uh, in recent years in independent cinema, but to like, you know, to see it on HBO Max, I think is kind of fun to think about the opportunities of the kind of stories uh, we could see on that platform. Yeah. And I, I haven't seen I'm Pregnant yet, but it's my understanding that it doesn't seem like it's a movie that will overshadow Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is so similar in plot, right? Um, but kind of be a nice compliment to it you know like that the two can work well in conversation with each other which you know it's a big conversation and you know so it's going to have different facets and different ways of talking about it so yeah i guess both should exist although i will say joanna i'm confused when you were saying netflix movies kissing booth 2 and roma why did you pick two movies that were both directed by (laughs) quran famous for their black and white photography too 
Uh, I really feel like Karan, like, uh, you know, dropped the potential of Kissing Booth 1 with Kissing Booth 2. But you Well, know, didn't we'll we all see him in the TikTok with his daughter where he's just, like, eating yeah. breakfast? Yes. While she, yes, uh, yes. So, like, he might he might have seen Kissing Booth 2 for all we know. Well, get, um, who weekly needs to get on that? You know, has <laughs> Alfonso <laughs> Karan seen Kissing Booth 2? <laughs> Would love to know the answer. Um, Joanna, anything else we should know before we hear your interview with Haley Lou Richardson? Um, that Unpregnant is on HBO Max on September 10th. And Giancarlo Esposito is in it in a truly delightful sort of like Hector Elizondo in a Gary Marshall movie <laughs> role. Wow! Uh, wow! So very specific. You know, <laughs> you know, you you love a like. Uh, are you an angel or not? I'm not sure. That's how I always feel about Hector Elizondo in a Gary Marshall movie. Um, so. Very recent little gold men guest Giancarlo Esposito uh, yeah. making a comeback. So uh, let's go ahead and listen to your interview. We are thrilled to welcome to Little Gold Men, Haley Lou Richardson, uh, in honor of her new HBO Max film, Unpregnant. Hello, Haley Lou Richardson. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing well. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, and I hope you take it as a compliment because this is how I mean it. I saw you in three separate films, Columbus, Support the Girls, Edge of 17, before I realized you were the same actress. Because oh, I you- think that's cool. You so disappeared into those. Like, it was finally the third one. I was like, all right, let me look up. Who is this person? It was Support the Girls. And I looked you up and I was like, oh, I've seen her already. Oh, my God. And um, I just think you are an incredible chameleon in what you do. And I'm wondering <laughs> if uh, if you are in your career so far intentionally going after roles that feel distinct and different to you. Like, what are you, what are you after right now? Uh, Well, first of all, I definitely do take that as a compliment, and it means a lot to me. (laughs) So thanks. Yeah, my favorite actors are ones that you, like, don't recognize at first, even if they're, like, Christian Bale or something. You know, I I just, I love that, and I love that about acting is that you can bring, like, a hint of your soul and what makes you you to something, but then, like, totally dive into something totally different than you. And, yeah, I think that earlier on in my career, I got pretty lucky with getting projects that were in characters that were not the same thing over and over again or typecast or whatever. And that was kind of just luck because, you know, I was like desperately trying to do any project that would hire me. And now I feel like I've been able to channel that more into like in the decisions that I make and being more selective about, you know, exploring totally different walks of life and characters and all that. I'm curious, you've gotten to work with so many great people already, uh, you know, and, and you're only, you've only just begun. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to out you right now. We're on a Zoom call. I can see you. You told me you're wearing uh, headphones that were inspired by John, John Cho. Cho. <laughs> <laughs> you're Columbus yeah. co-star. I'm wondering, beyond amazing taste in headphones, is there anything else you've picked up from people that you've worked with so far in your career that has really, like, helped you figure out what you want to do going forward? Yeah, well, I do have like the superficial things that I pick up from people like John Cho's headphones and Colin Farrell lights incense in his trailer and like has all the lights off and has incense. Like like literally you just walk in and it's like fog. It's like a haunted house of incense. Um, <laughs> but now I do that. On, on the one movie I've done since working with him, I, I did that every single day. Um, so there's those... Uh, superficial things but yeah I feel like when when I've gotten the chances to even just watch like I I got to work with Sir Ben Kingsley and I literally had 
a scene and a half with him. But whenever I was on set and he was working, um, I would just kind of watch how he was and just his approach was so specific and, and just getting to see how all of these actors that I really respect are also different and have such different approaches to what they do. And I don't know, taking some things and then looking at things and being like, hmm, I don't know if that's right for me. But then other things are like, oh, wow, I've never seen it that way. So yeah, definitely trying to learn whenever I can from whoever I can. And my impression of uh, a project like Support the Girls is that it is very different from your standard filmmaking uh, process in terms of improv or, or the way that everything is put together. Is that accurate? And, and if so, like, what did, what did you learn from that experience specifically? Yeah, that movie was, I mean, every movie I work on feels like a totally different experience from the last, but that one was very unique uh, because the story and movie itself was so unique and so specific. But that was, I look back at that movie and I feel like that was like the only movie that I've done where I genuinely had fun and like felt joy and like like all the time and nothing was like an agonizing day for me or a, a really tough like scene, you know. I just genuinely had fun acting in that movie. And sometimes acting, even when it's extremely fulfilling, isn't fun. Like I would not use the word fun to describe a lot of my most memorable or exciting times on sets. But uh, yeah, that movie was just so fun for me. And I think that just had to do with the character I was playing and her energy and stuff. But I'm sure a lot of people were annoyed at me for (laughs) for having that energy 24-7. But that's why that movie was so unique for me in that experience because I genuinely had fun acting. Well, so for something like Unpregnant, you talk about you're at a point in your career where maybe you're able more to pick and choose specifically what you're going to do next. So what was it about Unpregnant that made you decide this is something you definitely want to do? Oh, man. Um, Well, honestly, when I first, when my agents first called and told me about this movie that they wanted me to be in about a girl that gets pregnant in high school, decides to get an abortion, goes on a road trip to get an abortion, and it's a comedy. (laughs) I was like, I don't know how, I don't know how, or like, how is that gonna happen? And then I read the script and it really is like such an ambitious goal to try to make a movie about something that's so real and that's so sensitive. And, you know, people are, are very against that and, um, and, but to handle it within this like lighthearted adventure movie. So I, I was a little bit nervous. I wasn't like, oh yeah, definitely sign me up. I was, I was nervous because that's putting myself as a person into this world where people are just going to hate me and it's going to be inevitable that people will hate me because I'm associated with making a movie talking about abortion. And so I, I was uh, not unsure, but I was nervous and just like, I don't know if this can work at first. But then I met with Rachel and I knew her because we did a, a Lifetime movie. <laughs> when I first moved to L.A., we did a Lifetime movie called Escape from Polygamy. Um, so it was cool. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I really I really want to track down Escape from Polygamy. I know. That's, a, that's a whole other story. We can do another <laughs> podcast about that. <laughs> by itself but it was just cool to um, reconnect with her after all this time on on a project that was very different than escaping polygamy and 
And she was so passionate about it and she had a really strong vision. It meant a lot to her. I was inspired by her. And then in the end, when I like, you know, committed to do it and committed to myself that I'm going to be a part of this and I'm going to commit, it was kind of the same thing that made me nervous and hesitant at first that like then got me excited um, and inspired me to like, maybe this can work and it can be seen by a broader audience and start you know, real and important conversations. So when it comes to something, you know, this political, this potentially divisive, do you feel like it's, you know, it's a a message better delivered through comedy? Is there something about comedy that helps make sure that what you want to come through, which is the humanity of these characters rather than the, you know, larger political issue is what comes across in Unpregnant? I don't really know. I mean, obviously, people deal with things differently in their life. Like sometimes when there's a really important or, you know, situation someone's in or when they're faced with adversity or whatever, an important decision, you know, everyone handles it completely differently, whether they go away and sob for days or whether they make jokes about it, whether they don't accept it, whether they're whatever. So I feel like it really just matters if you do it right in whatever genre or vehicle you use to tell the story. And I think that in this with Unpregnant, my biggest focus, like every single day with every single scene was trying to balance the, you know, tone of the movie and then the importance and the reality and the weight of what my character is going through. So I feel like I had to surrender to like the lighthearted nature and the fast paced chaotic nature of the movie and the tone without ever taking Veronica's situation lightly. So I don't know. I don't know how I did it. It was very hard for me. (laughs) It was hard. Every single scene presented new challenges where I was like, oh, I didn't expect this scene to be so difficult, but um, they all were (laughs) to navigate for me. You know, as much as Veronica's on this one journey, she's also on this other journey to reconnect with an old friend of hers that that she has uh, sort of gotten uh, fallen out with, played by the great Barbie Ferriera, who I know from Euphoria. But what you know, what was it like working with Barbie and what is it like working with someone where you need to be able to establish like history before you even start? Oh, I feel like. I mean, it's something that just happens naturally or doesn't. Like, it's the same thing with, like, a romance movie or, you know what I mean? Like, there, I feel like it just happens or doesn't. And um, I think she's definitely a lot more like Bailey than I'm like Veronica. In real life, as (laughs) us, um, we are very different, but we still have this, like, you know, connecting energy, like our energies like come together and we just have fun and joke around and balance each other out and learn from each other and support each other and all that, even though we're just very different people. And I think that having characters like Bailey and Veronica that are like polar opposites um, and then putting them in, in these like extreme situations just kind of, I don't know, it's, it's easier, I guess, to just have their personality person. What the fuck is that? I, you know what? I haven't <laughs> talked much in the last six months. So I forget, I guess. I just completely forgot how. How, wor- how words do they? Yeah, how they? words do they? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, just putting those different personalities in these crazy situations just can kind of make that chemistry and stuff happen. Well, you know, to that end, because you are threading the needle on tone so much, as you mentioned this movie, like between, um, you know, heightened emotion and heightened comedy, what is what was the most challenging day for the two of you guys on set? Is there like physical comedy is the hardest? Is it the emotion that's the hardest? What is it? Well, for me, there were two things that were like, really like the, the challenging thing for me was balancing the tone. And again, that was like in every single scene from the very beginning of the movie, when Veronica finds out she's pregnant in the school bathroom, like the scene is comedic and it's fast paced. And, but Veronica's whole life, like is flipped upside down in that moment. Every single scene was a challenge for me with, with walking that line of the tone and the, and the reality. But also, something that was working against us was the weather and the conditions where we were, because we were out in the middle of nowhere in the desert in Albuquerque, and most people think that the desert is going to be nice and hot and dry, but it, there were, for some reason, Arctic temperatures coming through Albuquerque the two months oh, we were no. filming, and we would work. We would be out there in the middle of nowhere, yeah, wearing, like, doing our summer road trip movie. Barbie's wearing shorts. I'm wearing a little thin like long sleeve shirt and it was 18 degrees there's like winds that are just like biting winds and I'm just trying everything I can to get through a scene without my teeth chattering because I'm frozen Barbie's legs are blue (laughs) like there were things like that that were again like just an unexpected challenge to try to figure out how to act good (laughs) in in that um, in, in the prep for the movie, uh, you mentioned sort of Rachel's vision. Did she mention any other like film or TV or books that she was like, I mean, I, I know this is, this film is based on a book, but like that she was inspired by that she had like a mood board from that she wanted you to check out in order to yeah. nail down tone. Yes. She sent me and even throughout filming when I was, you know, struggling to like find this thing this balance, uh, she sent me a bunch of different things to watch, episodes of shows, movies. But the main, like, through line, like, thing that she was like, if you're going to do this movie, you have to watch Thelma and Louise. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, yeah, and I just feel like, um, yeah, the hearts of these two movies are really just similar. And so that was was a big one for uh, me, Barbie, and Rachel. What was the and this was your first time watching Thelma and Louise? Yeah, I know I suck, don't no, I? No, no, <laughs> no. I'm just curious what it's like to watch Thelma and Louise in like I presume 2019 or whatever. Yeah. Like what? Like what was that experience like for you? Well, it totally holds up. Like I feel like it was just made kind of before its time. You know, it was one of those things that like it's the, that movie's got it all. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's just got it all. And Brad Pitt on top of it all. Oh so yeah, Brad. Else? Oh yeah. I don't know if I'd seen. Wasn't that one of his first things? Yeah. He's so young. Yeah, him in those little James Dean jeans. <laughs> mm-hmm. His little hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> um, this isn't the the first movie you've done that's based on a book I'm wondering if you're the kind of person who like wants to read the book and study it before you do the film or you prefer to keep your performance separate from whatever came before it 
I think that, because I did this movie Five Feet Apart, which also had a book, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty right. sure the book was written for that after the script. Because, yeah, it was one of those things where the movie and the script started happening, and as we were filming the movie, the script was, or the book was being written. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that about that movie. Okay. Yeah, they did that, I think, so that the book could be released, like, when people were hyped about the movie coming out, and it was, like, that type of thing. So, mm-hmm. um At that point, I was like, I don't really, I'm not a good reader. It takes me a long time to get through (laughs) books. And I read like for a living scripts all the time. So it takes like a a very specific kind of book to get me to sit down and read for hours. But um, like Brandon Sanderson fantasy novels. Have you ever read those? Yes. You read Brandon (laughs) Sanderson? Yes. Have you read Warbreaker? Yes. yes. Have you read the Mistborn trilogy? Yes. yes, Oh my God. Aren't they the best? Yes, I just like love the dreamy look that crossed across your face as you mentioned Brandon Sanderson's. I know, name. I, I just, just like, like fell in love with freaking <laughs> Vin and I wanna I want Warbreaker to be a movie and I wanna play Siri so bad. Great. Let's it's, manifest it. Let's manifest let's make it. it, have it. I'm, I'm putting it out there. I I mean like I I wanna do that so bad. Aren't those books amazing? They're incredible. They're really good. Have you read the books after Mistborn? No. Mm-mm. Should I? Well, I haven't read them, but my boyfriend just finished them. And I'm wondering if I should read those because there's three of those that like take place like hundreds of years after the Mistborn trilogy ends. Mm -hmm. And then there's Elantris, which is the standalone book. But I don't know if I should read Elantris or those books or... This is, this is, I never expected like to <laughs> uncover this about you in this interview. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, wow. This is, I, I love those books so much. They've That's definitely amazing. helped quarantine be less... Less shitty. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you, you know, you mentioned, uh, I hope it's kosher for me to bring it up, but you mentioned doing like a callback over Zoom mm-hmm. um, before we started recording. What has, you know, the auditioning callback, whatever process been like for you in, in COVID? Yeah, I think that was the only audition I've done this entire okay. time. <laughs> because I think, I mean, I've done a couple meetings over Zoom, but like, I think that the last few months, things are obviously starting to film now and open up a bit, which I'm so excited about. But I think that for a few months, like the whole industry was like, what do we do? Like, we can't really give these projects like the green light or whatever, because who knows what, like, you know, start dates kept getting pushed and everything. But um, yeah, all, all the meetings I've been doing have been over Zoom, which I like seeing people in person because... I just like that. Like, I'm not a technology gal. Mm -hmm. Um, But it has been, I guess, nice not having to sit in traffic (laughs) and go somewhere. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Pandemic silver lining. Um. (laughs) Brandon Sanderson and not sitting in traffic. (laughs) Those two things and those two. Oh, and Animal Crossing. Those three things and those three things only. (laughs) Keeping you sane. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. You know, you're, you're obviously, like, still incredibly young. I think, you know, you you have the look of someone who could play a teenager for a long time to come. But I'm curious, you know, like for you, mm-hmm. is it any harder to play a teenager now than it was when you were starting out? Like, how, how do you feel about these roles? Yes. Yeah. It, it honestly is harder because, I mean, I went through life as a teenager when I was a teenager and then I revisited it in like 10 different scenarios <laughs> since then over the last eight years. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think I'm kind of worn out from it. 
Uh, and it's, it is genuinely hard to, because I'm hard on myself as an actor and like really want to believe the characters I'm playing and the words I'm saying and the emotions I'm going through and stuff. It's like, it is hard to genuinely find that connection to what that was like, how to see the world when you're, you know, that young. But I honestly wasn't really thrilled about doing teenager stuff before Unpregnant came to me, but then um, just the topics that it discusses and how the movie was set up less like a, you know, you're not like in a high school the whole movie and it's not about like teen romance. It's like a very universal and important thing to talk about and situation to explore. So I think that's how I was able to connect. But yeah, I honestly, I'm pretty over it. I'm pretty over the teenage shit. <laughs> I am. What do you, what do you most, you know, when you look forward then to your career, is there someone else's career that you're like, I want that person's career or a kind of project that other than Brandon Sanderson adaptations mm-hmm. that you like most want to do going forward? I want to manifest um, more things for you. Yeah, no, I yeah, love yeah. that. Let's just keep doing this and <laughs> yeah. maybe someone will listen and, and help me out. Um, I mean, I really admire like a lot of girls that are like in the generation kind of a li- like right older than me. Like uh, Shailene Woodley, I think, is done. You know, she was on the ABC Family Show and then she did all the, you know, teen romance movies and the divergent things. And, and now I think she's just doing really like, her role in Big Little Lies is yeah. so... I mean, she's my favorite. I mean, those are incredible actresses on that show, like the best of the best. And I, yeah. I'm i most kind of um, inspired by or impressed by her on that show. And I just think, I don't know, I don't know her, but I'm proud of her. <laughs> and uh, I feel the same about like Emma Stone. I just, I love her career. And it just seems like every character she plays is completely different and uh, really interesting and tonally different. The directors she works with are really different and cool. She does like The Favorite and then Zombieland. And then, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so yeah, I think people like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, it's not a bad, not a bad. Uh, yeah, those aren't, those aren't bad people to be not inspired to show by. Me. <laughs> not to show me. One thing that I really loved about Unpregnant, uh, among many things, uh, is sort of the way in which um, your character, Veronica, is forced to confront what she wants and what she doesn't want and how, you know, her boyfriend at the time represents that and, and how she's thinking of herself and her own ambitions. And I just thought that was really inspiring for potentially young women to watch and think about putting their wants and needs mm-hmm. um you know, foremost in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are you most hoping that anyone, but maybe specifically young women, will take away from this film? Well, I love that you, like, the movie made you think of that, and I think that's an extremely important, uh, you know, message that the movie has. But I, I think that Veronica, at the beginning of the movie, like, you see her in this, like, perfect like cute girl pink skirt and her like hair perfectly done and her like you know you see her friends and you see the kind of people they are and um and she's just like something I really deeply related to about her as a person and like the core of why she is the way she is is that she puts so much importance on what others think of her and how they see her and like these expectations or pressures or wants 
from the people that she surrounds herself with um, mm-hmm. and like living for that as opposed to just like living for herself and what, she's, what she knows is right for her, not just, you know, when she gets pregnant, but just in every aspect of her life. She's like living for approval and acceptance of others. And through this, you know, <laughs> life kind of altering and pausing situation, she is forced to face that and forced to make the decision that's right for her or else it'll change her whole entire life and all of her goals and dreams. So that kind of is like a big wake up call for just how, and then through her reconnecting with Bailey and that friendship, it's like a huge wake up call of like, I can't keep living like this. Like I can't keep being dishonest about myself and who I am and the things that I want to do and the decisions I want to make because you know, my mom and dad have certain expectations of me and my friends think I'm this and I have to be this for this school or whatever that is. I just, mm-hmm. I related to that because that's something that to this day I work on is just like living for myself and not for other people. So yeah, I like that message that the movie has yeah. there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, is there anything else that um, Haley Lou Richardson fans should be looking forward to after they watch <laughs> Unpregnant? What else do you have on the horizon? Um, <laughs> well, Haley Lou Richardson fans, <laughs> um, I have another movie that I did with the director of Columbus, uh, Koganata. He's literally the most genius person that I've ever met in my life. And I call him my best friend forever and it makes him uncomfortable <laughs> when I say that, <laughs> but I call him it anyways. Um, but I did another movie with him, his second film, it's called After Yang and it's with Colin Farrell and... And it's a really cool cast. And I play a character that I think is like the most different of probably any character I've played before. So I'm very excited about that, to see that. I haven't seen it yet um, because of all of this. But I I literally don't think I've ever been more excited to see a movie that I've been a part of. But that's coming out sometime in the future. Who knows? When? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. And uh, oh, and I crochet. I'm sitting by my all my yarn and I crochet and I have an Etsy account and I sell all of my little tops and dresses and hats and scrunchies that I crochet. So that's a fun thing, I guess. <laughs> what's your What's your Etsy shop called? It's called Hooked by Haley Lou. Great, love yeah. it, love it. What a What a great quarantine activity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I've been doing it since I was eight, so it definitely has come in handy. Okay, I guess I can add that to the list of things that have made quarantine less shitty. Brandon Sanderson, Animal Crossing. Crocheting, crocheting. and not being in traffic. Yes. That's ideal. Yep. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for chatting. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I had fun. That does it for this week's show. Um, you can find our coverage of the Toronto Film Festival uh, coming up on VanityFair.com this week. And uh, Joanna is back writing for us as well. So you can find Joanna there. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna? Joe wrote this. And Richard. You're right, Laws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best reason that Emmys are worse than Oscars goes to Joanna Robinson. They don't fit in boxes very easily. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. 
It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.